build business with passion and let data tell your story. If you are a founder having difficulties handling investors' curveball questions, or an investor wondering how to find the next golden startup deal, then this is the podcast for you. Hi, I'm Parul, your host for this episode of the Dash Investability Podcast. Welcome to my investors' lounge, uh, Jens. It's it's such a wonderful pleasure to uh, you know have you host you here on this particular show, this edition. Uh, usually, I don't like to introduce my guests. I would rather like my guests to introduce themselves because they do a better job than anybody else. So, over to you, Jens. Thanks for having me, Nikhil. So, um, I'm Jens. I live in Berlin. <clears throat> I make about 20 angel investments per year in early stage technology companies. Um, I typically invest 100,000 euros initially and then happy to invest more later on. Um, once I'm invested, I coach the founders through for about a year to the next round of funding. We can talk later about what that means or doesn't mean. You know, before this, I spent a long time living in the UK. I did a PhD there, built some technology, then went into a startup, then started my own. Then I helped set up the first startup studio in the UK, which turned into an operational VC firm. So that was later then called um, uh, Forward Partners. Um, I, I, I then left the UK to bring up the children in, um, in Germany, moved to Berlin. Textiles asked me to set up their, their local office here. And I was the, the managing director of the German fund for four years, made 40 investments in that time, um, helped build out the European operations. And after four years with Textiles, I, I decided to leave and set up my own um, angel fund, which is called Angel Invest. We've now invested in 59 companies over the last three years. Many of them are doing really well. Companies like Raza or CoachUp or Everphone, UserCentrics, many others. Um, and, you know, we just look for, um, you know, super ambitious teams that do something that nobody else is doing and maybe it's already working a little bit. And then we're happy to, to, to help them coach them through for about a year. You know, we try not to tell founders what to do. We just try to help them, you know, do it really well. That's sort of the mantra that we have. Right. And that's sort of me. I don't really do anything else apart from making these investments, I mean, at least not professionally. I, I also sit on the advisory board of a, a Berlin-based VC fund. And that's sort of what I do. That's a lot that you already do. But you didn't tell us any fun fact about yourself. Tell us about you as a, as a person, something really funny about your, your <laughs> pet peeves and what really you know gets your goat. Oh, gosh. You know, I like puzzles. I like it's, it's one of the reasons why I become an, became a natural scientist, and then you know went into in, into investing. It's like all these multi-dimensional puzzles, right? Complicated, fuzzy systems, and and figuring things out and trying to to figure out is this something that could work? What what goes into that? What do I have to do now to maximize the chances of that company succeeding? And how can I help the founders best, right? So that's sort of like the, the my intrinsic motivation is just I really like figuring out complicated puzzles that's really what what does it for me you know apart from that i sort of really like helping people you know that, that's sort of how, how this, this sort of comes together for me and apart from that i don't know how funny i am or not you know sort of how many fun facts there are uh, fun fact might be when i was 12 i broke my back i'm super happy that i can walk you know that's sort of like i have very little aspiration to become a weightlifter or do anything like that um i i, I sort of I, I think that that incident changed my my um the way in which I view the world in quite a lot of ways, if you like, right? Um, anyway, so yeah, that's sort of a little bit more about me, maybe. And and how's been your pre-VC journey and post-VC journey like? I mean, if you were to draw a comparison between the two? Um, yeah, I mean, so when you, when you do when you do a startup, you there is an initial phase where you really try to figure out exactly who your customers are, you know, what problem they have, what the job to be done is, and, and what, what you have as a value proposition, and then how you fix that, right? And that process takes, I don't know how long it takes, it's quite variable from company to company. And then and then you basically fix your, I mean, you basically, you, you, you set yourself and you say, okay, that's it, and we're going for that now. And after that comes a multi-year slog of execution. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> where, where, where it's just, where it's about company growth and, and, and bringing all of that to life. But the in principle decision that you've made is, is sort of like you make in the first year. Yeah. And so that, as I said before, so because I like this figuring out of things, it's like for me running a startup is kind of boring in the sense that, that I, you know, I do the interesting bit for a year and after that I become increasingly bored with the whole thing. That, that's sort of how I, how I have felt that when I was on the, um, on the, on the operating side. And then when I went into the startup studio and into Techstars and now Angel Invest, which is like a gradual slide from operating more and more into, more onto the investing side, I just spent most of my time. I mean, if I look at how I spend my time in the week, I spend a lot of time talking to founders whom I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. And then I spend a lot of time talking to, um, to founders that are in my uh, that, that we have invested in, right? That that, that I'm that, I, that I'm currently working with, and it, it's it's just a continuous exercise of trying to figure out number one, do I is this the right kind of company for me to work with? Should I invest in this? And then then on the on the side where where we have invested, what 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 should I what question should I ask? Like uh -huh. what's the most interest? Like what's the most helpful way? what can I do for that fund, for that team right now that would impact them in the best way and, and really help them execute better? Yeah. And, and that's sort of, um, that's, that's, that's the, the, those kind of questions is how I spend more than, I mean, vastly more than half of my time on. And so that's obviously continuously intellectually stimulating and it aligns really nicely with sort of my personal interests, if you like. Yeah. So this is this is very interesting. You know, I mean, you said that you, you you were an operator, and then of course you started supporting the ecosystem. Through the ecosystem, you started actually investing in a lot of companies, and then uh, you set up your own angel fund and also serve on the board of uh, VC fund. What's the funniest pitch that you've ever heard? Is pitch. You mean the, the funniest pitch they eventually invested in? Because there are quite a lot of things where I laugh, you know, but I end up not investing. I, I'm not quite sure those things correlate. But um, so let's take it. Let, let's hear both. You know, something. The funniest. Like I, I don't really mentally look at. I look at over way over a thousand pitch decks a year. I, I I don't want to point out anyone where I think that was funny and then I ended up not investing in it. I think that's sort of not really fair, you know. But um, because it's it's quite that that's not right. Of all the companies I've backed, what was the funniest pitch? Um, well, I mean, I it, I don't know whether it's the funniest, but it's the one, it, you know, there are companies where I invest where I think, when I first time look at this pitch, I think, I can't believe that this is a thing. You know, it's so surprising or it's so, it's like, really, this exists? Like unbelievable, right? The, the, why, why should this even be a, like? Is this really a thing? So, for example, I, I've invested in a London-based company that's in the business of helping people deal with porn addiction, right? <laughs> where, where, and you know, I had, I don't know. So I, I looked into this. Turns out this is actually a huge thing, particularly for young adults, particularly during COVID. And and I, and I just became, you know, I, I was really. Yeah, I don't know. I looked at it I, and initially thought, what is that? Is that even serious? Should I really look at this? And then the more I looked into it, the more interest I became in this whole space and I ended up investing and the company is doing phenomenally great, right? It's a company called Remojo out of London. So, um, and I, I just always think this is so delightful that, that, that you know, I, I don't have this thing where I think I know what the world needs, but the founders do. I think it's just great. Because they they find all of these problems with the world, right? And they say, I know these people, I, I see what problem they have, and I figured out how to help them, and this is how I do it. And, right. and I and I, I just when I the, the, the Jack who runs that company has done, done a phenomenal job at figuring this out, right? So which is why the company is working so well, anyway. Um, so I, that was maybe the most uh, one of the most surprising. I think no, funny is the wrong word. Maybe it's one of the most surprising companies that I ended up in, and you know investing into and i'm super happy that, that i have invested uh, less than a year ago actually yeah so tell me something about uh, <clears throat> this this is a very interesting situation and i think you know a lot of people really get to understand 
you were not alone when you did that. I mean, you ended up investing in a mojo, but generally, you know, you must have passed a lot of companies. That's what we call today as entire portfolio. Yeah. SMR Ventures uh, very openly publishes their, uh, or, uh, you know, I think part of a very, very extremely minuscule part of their entire portfolio. But what, what about you? What is your regret capital, if I may ask you? Oh, I, I have... Um... There were there's a number of companies where where I passed that are doing really well, yeah? and it's typically um, almost always because I think incorrectly about the competitive situation of these companies. Uh-huh. Um, so I I have a tendency to overestimate um, competition in some long some vectors. So there are two companies. Uh, that I passed because I thought they were competing with companies that were already in my portfolio. And um, on paper, that might even be true, but in reality, it's completely untrue. Um, so, 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 you know, just, so, so those are two companies that I... So the funny thing is, if I had invested in both of those, it might have actually negatively impacted the relationships with the two teams that I have that I am invested in. So I'm still not 100% certain whether I should have invested in them. Then there are other companies, particularly in the fintech space, where you know doing really well. They have so many competitors, but these markets are so vast that the competitors are de facto irrelevant, right? <laughs> so it's just about execution. So um, there are a couple of companies that I think they've grown so fast and they're so big now, why didn't I invest in this? And I thought, well, because they have 10 competitors, so they're doing exactly the same thing. It just turns out it doesn't really matter at all. And, you know, this, this is an unusual situation, so I'm not, not so, not so my, my fintech exposure is there, but I'm not a specialized fintech investor, right? So it's, it's, it's these kind of things. And that's sort of, you know, you, you look at all of that and um, you try to learn from that, you know? So maybe say, okay, unless there is something that's immediately directly competing with a portfolio company, I might still want to invest. Um, so I've done that recently, and it, that was a really great decision. And, um, and and then on the on the other side, on the fintech side, I've just become less, less sensitive to competition. Or in, in some very large market situations, I've just become much, much less sensitive to competition. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's quite, quite interesting that you uh, talk about this. Google for one, you know, I mean, Google already had, Harish, can you please uh, uh, mute yourself? Marcus, can you mute? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, So we were talking about Google. I mean, Google, uh, uh, back then, you had so many search engines like Ask Ask Jeeves, and I don't know, I can't even remember. Uh, it's been it's been it's been such a long time, and nobody believed that Google will be what it is today. Of course, there's been series of pivots out there. Similarly, we are using this platform called Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> I would have never invested in Zoom. I'm, exactly. I guarantee you, this is almost that is almost impossible for me because I'm I'm sort of more of a. Um, I look for more eclectic things, right? Things that are really different and really new. It's sort of the way in which I look at it. And and Zoom is a pure execution play. They just did video much better than everybody else. But funnily enough, the reason why I ended up using Zoom a few years ago was because um, it was noticeable that the processor load of Zoom was significantly lower than of all other video platforms. Absolutely, right. Absolutely. And because of the the way in which they which they have encoded this, and and um, so I don't know whether. So I, I think it's unlikely I would have invested in Zoom, to be quite frankly honest. But I always ask myself, so like, is this company really so much better than the whole competition? Is that really going to make any difference to the customers? Yeah, that's significant. And with with Zoom, it actually was because even before the pandemic, I, I've made most of my investments just via video, and I've got days where I sit here for five, six, seven hours straight in front of video. And, you know, try to do that on something that's not Zoom. And after three hours, your computer is so hot, you can't continue. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So, you know, at least how it used to be. So if, when you see that also as an investor, you, you, you know, you say, wow, that's really standard. That's like, it's noticeable, right? It's significant. So, so then it, I think it still takes quite a lot of conviction to then say, okay, because of that, this company is going to corner that market. 
I think that's actually that's kind of like a relatively big leap. Yeah. So um, I, I don't know. Yeah, but it's it's difficult. You know, it, it's, you, you have no nobody can see the future, so it's difficult to make these kind of judgment calls. So do, do you would you define it as innovation? Um. Yes, because innovation is the process of introducing change, and I think without you know proper video platforms, the way in which we do these things now that wouldn't have happened. So they're definitely innovating. Have they invented? You know, in, invention is the creation of something new, and they haven't really created something new, right? They've 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 added it. They've improved it, something that already exists, and turned it into something that people have a preference for. But that is like, if you think about it. Let's just, I like to use the car analogy, right? So um, like maybe a, a BMW is a better car and a Skoda is a cheaper car and then a Tesla is a totally different car, right? So, in, and, and they build, they build the really the, the, the premium Benz type version, right? Because right. Zoom is really in no way different from a Skype, from many of the other video products used to be. You know, I think we're using blue jeans that, Textiles at some point, and can't remember how many other whereby and how many other tools I've I've trialed, right? But they just built a better version of that, the one that works significantly better, which is also similar to what Google did. Although in their case, the, the leap, the product leap, was much more significant. Yeah. Right, right. So then uh, it just brings me back to one question, um, you know, and this you you I would like you to answer it in two forms. One, it is specific to Germany, Europe and then probably with a, from a global perspective. So what are the entrepreneurship ideas that you have encountered uh, recently which deserve a bit more attention and in this order of magnitude? In what way do you mean that? Like conceptually or, or specific companies or, or specific? No, no, conceptually and of course uh, uh, you can, if you want to name specific companies, go ahead, do that. But from an idea standpoint, because you know we talk about initial inception is always idea, but you know that's only ten percent of the problem. <laughs> yeah, I think one thing I have so th there are a couple of sort of trends that that I am actively investing in, if you like, if, if that's maybe that's a helpful way to answer the question. So one one thing that I find fascinating on the and the fintech side is a trend that I think of as I, I give you software and when you give me your transaction. So you're 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 facilitating you're giving somebody a piece of software so that they can work better along whatever dimension. But in order to help them do that, you need to take charge of of that of the financial transactions that they're doing. And I think the reason why this is interesting is because then you don't have a rat race to the bottom in terms of transaction processing costs. But you're actually differentiating yourself much more on the software side. I think that's also quite defensible and quite sticky. You know, I think mm -hmm. that's a really interesting macro trend. And I see this a lot right now. And there's some companies that are ramping up revenues extremely quickly with that approach. So that, that that's one. Another one that I, is one that I think of is I um you people are starting to buy software to manage their software. I also really like this, right? So much software, it's so complicated. Oh gosh, I need some more software to manage all my software. Um, there's a lot of that happening right now. I, I think these companies are also super sticky. Um, th this also makes quite a lot of sense to me. Um, another one that I really like, um, I see quite a few startups that are building real technology right now typically involving hardware or, or real chemistry or real machinery that very, very few investors dare to, um, you know, touch. Yeah? And I think there are some extraordinary companies that have the potential to be, you know, 10 billion plus in size in terms of market cap within a short period of time that most investors just ignore, right? I love all of that. And there's quite a, quite a lot of um, environmental technology in that um, in many different ways. So I, we, we, we invest in those kind of things too, you know. And th those three things in combination, that's quite a significant percentage of the kind of things that I'm currently 
really excited about. And apart from that, I just love everything that's that's sort of eclectic. You know, I, everything that's super unusual that nobody else does. I, I I just, you know, whether that's real technology or not, but I, I like all of that. I think sort of going out, zooming out from sort of, I think the way I think about the investment markets is I think Europe and the US from a venture capital investment perspective are joined at the hip. It's actually one market. It's the same investors that invest across both. It's quite fluid. I think there's very little difference. Outside of that, I, I think all of the other markets are really separate. So you have you have a um, you have a market in China, although to what extent that will exist in five years is a totally different question. Then you have a market in India, then you have the whole you know, Southeast Asia market, you have an a Latin market now, you have a you will have an African investment market, right? Or or a Middle East one or whatever. They're all they're all super separate markets. And and these markets in terms of the the teams that invest in them are very, very separate from each other. Yeah. And I think in terms of the, the maturity, there are some markets that are more developed than the others. And what is already so the Latin market is a good example of that. Many of the particularly the fintech things or whatever that, that you see in other markets that work well, there is, you know, they're, they're doing the copycats down over there, which which work really, really well. And I think it's a fantastic way to grow an ecosystem. Right, because you take something that works, you do the, the geographic transposition, and then once these companies are there in five, ten years, you will have a lot of um, because there will then be so many people who know how to build technology businesses. They will then start to um, do many more things that you call innovative, right? So things that that are really that are really different from 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 taking something and doing copy paste. Yeah, this has also happened in Germany ten years ago. You know. And we'll see this everywhere else too. I think there are no real differences um, in many, many countries in Europe when it comes to venture investing. A lot of European venture capital is quite the cross-border. All the late-stage funds invest in all of the countries. I think there's very little difference. I think there's some countries that are really behind in terms of the development of their local ecosystem, but it's really more down to local politics and a bunch of other things as opposed to you know, any significant other differences. Gotcha, gotcha. So, uh, you know, what we're going to do now uh, is I'm going to ask my colleague Parul also to ask you a couple of questions. And then uh, we're going to move on to audience question. It is, uh, we cannot take all the questions. We'll try to go by sequence, whatever we receive in. So audience, go ahead, start asking your questions on chat. And uh, I'm going to hand over uh, the stage to Parul. Parul, go ahead, ask a few questions. Thanks, uh, Nikhil, thanks for giving it to me. Uh, uh, yes, I would like to, for the benefit of the audience, because we usually get a lot of early stage founders on these kind of sessions. Mm -hmm. I think you made a very important point earlier on uh, that you pass these opportunities because the market uh, competition, uh, the market opportunity was not very clearly defined for you. So what are the mistakes or omissions uh, usually founders do when they're defining those, uh, you know, competition? What is the definition and how should they keep on refining it? Of course, they need to start somewhere. I would like you to kind of just dial into those basics so that yeah, it can help fine. the investors to assess. We, we can do that. I think ju just to clarify, I don't pass most of the time because of competition. It's just my anti-portfolio lives in the I pass for competition reasons uh, uh, bucket. Or, or, almost all of them are in that bucket because I pass for competition reasons. So that's sort of that. The okay, reason why... No, no, it's just that it's important because, we, we, because yeah. if, if the question is really much more, where do I see the most mistakes that founders make? Um, which is a slightly different question because... Yeah, I I would, I would like you to kind of, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, I think competition definition is sometimes a, a tricky part, right? Because that kind of helps you define your business model also sometimes. That helps you refining your product strategy, go to market sometime, how people want to position themselves, the narrative they want to build, perhaps also yeah. benchmarking their valuation, which would actually be a segue to my next question. So I'm kind of trying to uh, understand from you, like going back to the basics, how should you look at competition and how should you define that market opportunity? 
Yeah, so I think there are some, you mentioned the word positioning in the context of this. There are some really good books that people, if, if you really want to clue yourself up properly uh, in the audience, that there are a couple of books that are worth uh, reading. One of them is called Positioning by Al Rees. And then there's a, another book called um, Play Bigger by Al. Uh, his first name is also Al, and I can't remember his surname right now. Um, and, you know, they talk about, I think, the, this is going to take a little longer, but we're going to get to it eventually. So there, there are more brands that try to get into the brains of customers than there are words in the English language, right? The brain cannot deal with all of those words. Yeah, it's just impossible. So what the brain does, the brain creates a shortcut and it says it creates a couple of words and then it attaches the, the brand to those words. Yeah? And, and this is called a category. And wh whenever there is something that people really want, the brain makes a category. People talk about this category, right? And then the name of the number one player in that category becomes synonymous with the brand. Oh, I need a search engine. Oh, it's Google. What's Google? A search engine. What's a search engine? Google. There is no difference. It's identical, right? Every large company occupies that thing, that category. You cannot have a big company without occupying category, right? And in every category, there's one, typically one company, maybe two, but typically it's one that occupies that, that category. So really, when you try to build a big company, you're trying to create a new category that you can stick into the customer's mind. Yeah. And it has to be you that dominates that thing. And if it's not you, then it's somebody else. And all of the profit in that category will accrue to the number one. And the number two will break even and everybody else will get almost nothing. And that's how that works. So if you want to basically position yourself into a category that you create, right? You need to differentiate away that category from all other categories. And that category better be large and you better have the opportunity to become the number one in that category. And the problem is this is a pretty tall order. You know, it's almost like, hey, I've got two people here. And there's two people in the dark and I'm going to create this $10 billion category. And this is what this is called. And we're going to make this happen. Everybody else is not. <laughs> and that's difficult. This is also why from an investment perspective, it's where you get it wrong, particularly when you're early stage and you have almost nothing to go on. You would just say, oh, I don't believe this team can do that. Or you might say, oh, um, I see 15 other teams that are trying to do the same thing and I can't pick the one that's going to make it. I just can't. I don't know how to choose because this will only become apparent at serious C stage or whatever. Yeah. And I don't, I don't dare not try to pick because I don't know who's actually going to win and I don't want to be in that kind of competitive environment, right? So, so that's sort of how I think about competition. Um, and I, this is why I like investing in the oddball type companies a lot because, you know, if I'm right and this thing actually works, then they are the only ones going after that. So that's a much more forgiving environment. Yeah, because if you're up against 10 other competitors immediately, then you really have to have by far the best team and your specific angle that you're taking into the market really has to be right. Yeah? And, and that's sort of the, the, the burden on, on the team quality and the execution quality just goes up exponentially when that happens. And that's why I personally don't, as a super early stage investor, I very frequently don't invest in that. It's just easier to pick off some of those competitors in later investment rounds and at higher valuations than, than was possible for me. Um, that, but that's why, in a sense, for me, my trick has to be really team evaluation to a certain extent versus you know, competitor evaluation, because if I'm stuck on competitor evaluation, it's really difficult for me. Yeah. Sure. Now, thanks for clarifying that. I think I just wanted to kind of get that perspective out. The second uh, question, which was a segue to this one, was like, uh, you know, uh, founders are a bunch of optimistic people, and so are we, because like you yourself mentioned, uh, you're playing for that one big bet, and you want to get it right, and that's why you kind sure. of play for oddball. Now, after the initial meeting, when you meet that uh, oddball and you're really excited and the founder is really excited, there is a time when the, those conversations kind of become tricky. 
when it comes around the conversation around valuation and the investment check and how how should a founder um, tackle that you know because there is this dilemma from an investor standpoint they can see this to be really crazy uh, or you know <laughs> arrogant or whatever and from a founder side they might think that okay i'm giving away my ownership and they don't value me enough so how how should that be tackled uh, from from uh, an early stage founder and also sometimes people look at uh, you know raising a big round should they think about raising a big round should it be a you know or smaller rounds are effective like how how that how should they think about planning the fundraising um yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time discussing that with the teams where I'm invested. The answer is, is quite multifaceted. I think, I mean, going back to the question that you asked first, right? So you, you discuss the people are interested. How do you get them across the line? I think the number one advice, there's actually two separate pieces of advice. The first one is quite short. Never tell anyone that you're looking for a lead investor ever. Lead investor is like a toxic bomb. When you throw it into a fundraising discussion, that discussion will probably die. Because either everybody who could be a lead investor is turned off by that, or everybody who is by definition not has the perfect excuse to say, hey, why don't you get back to me when you have one? <laughs> yeah, so you definitely, you definitely do not want to ever mention the lead investor phrase in, in any discussion that you ever have. That, that's sort of rule number one. The second one is the, the way out of that is you need to work with, you know, conditional yeses, right? Under what conditions would you be happy to invest in my company? Oh, I don't know. Okay. Well, what do you typically do? Oh, typically, you know, what is the typical check size that you write? Oh, 25,000. Oh, okay, great. So, you know, what needs to be true? So you write the 25,000 check. Yeah, I never invest in rounds that are smaller than half a million. Oh, okay, so the round is at least half a million in size. And, it's from, and you know, it's like, and, and then I want to have a lead investor. It's like, okay, what does that mean? Oh, I want to have a VC in there. It's like, okay, but then you might fall out. So would you be happy if it's just a number of high quality angels? Yeah, that might be okay for me. I've done that as well. Okay, so basically what that means is you want to have a round of 500,000 and then you write 25K. Is there anything else that you need? Yes, I want to have preference shares. Oh, you want to have preference shares. Okay, what's the liquidation preference that you want? Oh, I want to have a 1X non-participating. Oh, okay, great. Well, is there anything else that you need? I want to have information rights. I want to get monthly update emails. Okay, you want to have monthly updates. Is there anything else that you want? No, that's it. Okay, if all of those things are true are you in for 25k yes okay great thank you very much great to have you on board let me write a follow-up email yeah and then basically i can confirm everything that you've just told to me in writing and then you can you know reconfirm that now the interesting thing is what has the and what has the founder agreed to nothing zero <laughs> So the investor has committed to invest 25k, provided that a bunch of conditions are true. But the founder has committed to nothing. They haven't even they haven't committed to anything. But they've got to commit. Can I use your name for further investors that you've committed 25k? Yes, you can. Great. Whom can you introduce me to? Who's a good co-investor? Whom do you like? Oh, I've got three friends that frequently co-invest with me. Let me introduce you. Right. And then you build from small checks to bigger checks. You build your rounds like that. Yeah. And. Um, and, and that's how that works. And as soon as you mention lead investor in any of those discussions, that investor will go away. So never say that. Uh, so those two things in combination, avoid lead investor discussion and then try to pin people down on a, on a uh, in, you know, conditional yes. Um, and, and, and then once you've got enough together to do a round, then you tell people, yeah, look, it's actually not a 500K round. It's a 1 million round. And the valuation that you mentioned, yeah, well, we're doing it on a 4 million pre, but there's so many cool investors involved. You know, you, you pick the right company. It's great to have you on board. Very few people pull out at that point. Gotcha. And that's how you sort of man, manage an angel around really well. Yep. I think that was a piece of golden advice there for the guys who are listening in today. So that was awesome. Thank you for saying that. I just want to ask you one thing. You mentioned you go through 1,000 pitch decks approximately minimum. Yeah. Do you ever, I would like to know how many emails do you have in your inbox right now and how many LinkedIn messages? Have you ever had uh, zero inbox ever? Yeah, several times today. 
Wow. So what is your productivity hack? That is something I would like to know. Um, single touch. Okay. So you're only allowed to touch an email once in your life. And then it needs to be archived. Okay. That's the only way in which this works. So you basically you read it, you action it, it's gone. Next. So either you just archive and do nothing, or you reply and archive, or you uh, whatever. It's very rare. I've got a separate email address that I forward complicated emails to that I have got no time to action. Um, and then it lives in this other inbox that I go through when I have time. Um, but it's it's a, a typically it's a single touch thing. Um, okay. and, and that's sort of the most important part of that. That's so an awesome piece of advice, basically. Have a don't do list, just cut out the work that you, you can't do, just don't decide. The work comes in when you continuously have to, you looked at this or you put it away, then you have to read it again, then you have to think about it again, then you yeah. put it away, then you have to, what was this again? I can't remember. Then it's like all of this extra time that you spend because you didn't quickly action something. It just takes a lot of time. And if you don't do that, you cut out 60, 70, 80% of your email time because you, you force yourself to really get things off the plate and get through the emails and just get them done. You know, that, that's sort of the, the most important. And that's sort of the most important thing for, for me. I, I then also have quite a lot of shortcuts that I have programmed that basically I just type a couple of keywords or type a keyword and then the whole parts of responses appear. So because there's so many things like, that I say over and over and over again. And it's just faster if I don't have to write the whole sentence. I just write a shortcut and the sentence appears, you know. It's, it's just saves me time. Awesome. I'll hand it over back to you, Nikhil, now to take the audience questions. Thank you, Jens. Thank, Thank you, you. Uh, Arul. Jens, I, uh, there are like a barrage of questions out there. So I'm going to put you in a bit of a spot, if you permit, with your permission, though. Yeah. That uh, I'm going to ask you to, so that we cover as many questions as possible. I'll, I'll keep the answer short, yeah. Absolutely, in one line, if possible. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> There's a very innocuous question which I see, which is that there might be several different startup selections of the investors, but what are the common criteria? I'm not sure if the question is clear enough, but whatever you made of it. What are the common criteria for me to say yes or, or, or to, yeah. to talk to a founder or? Yeah, I think uh, something on okay, that. So, if you don't understand the question, we can, you can... Okay, so the reason why I talk to startups when they contact me is typically because I haven't seen what they do before. Uh -huh. Or there is some unusual quality about the email. Yeah. Um, the reason why, why startups fail is because either the team fights or they can't figure out what customers want or because they can't get it to customers, can't ship it to customers. Yeah. So if you can figure out those three things, your startup is very unlikely going to fail. Yeah. And, and those are the three primary things that investors try to avoid. And then they're looking to for scalability, meaning scalable model, defensible, lack of competition, highly financeable by other investors, those kind of things, you know? So, and if you're an experienced investor, you look at something and it's an automatic evaluation along all of those criteria. Yeah, and, uh, and, and, and you try to just, you know, do, 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 yeah, seven things, look, okay, let's talk. It's interesting, uh, does, it, does it check like very quickly all of those boxes? Yes, okay, let's talk. Got it, got it. There's this very interesting question which has come from Hamdi. And this is about if the business is CapEx heavy. In, so what kind of attraction would you expect in such a situation? Um, find it's difficult to get this funded by European venture capitalists. They hate asset heavy. Uh -huh. um, look for money from family offices. All right. That's a, that's a very valuable advice. Then yeah. there's another question from a gentleman called Nabil. Uh, he runs a robotics startup. Do you invest in Pakistan? If not, why? I invest in Europe because I know Europe. I know, or we know, a very, a very high percentage of the venture capital investors in Europe 
we understand what they look for. And I can then also practically coach the founders in a direction where I both know that their businesses will perform and they will be highly investable by follow-on investors. And conversely, about the rest of the world, including Pakistan, I don't know what Pakistani customers want or need. I have no clue and I have no idea who is going to do a follow-on investment in Pakistan. So it, I, I couldn't actually functionally really help the companies. It, it just, I couldn't, I, I wouldn't be able to choose and I wouldn't be able to help effectively. And it's many time zones away. So my coaching would be very difficult to do practically. So it's just, I wouldn't know how to do it. So therefore, I just do what I know how to do. <laughs> and that's why I focus on Europe. Yeah. There's a very interesting question from Suresh Babu, which is that he's got experience in body construction, automobile body construction, and now getting into electric vehicles. How can he get help? I think it's a, it's a similar question like CapEx heavy, I would imagine. What do you think? Uh, how could he get help? It's a good idea to talk to investors, talk to founders who run businesses in your region with a similar business model and ask them how they did it. It's probably the best generic advice I can give with regards to, because it's applicable. To, it's probably generically a good idea to do that and ask people to mentor you and to help you. And, um, and you will have a conversion rate. If you ask 100 people to help you and mentor you, you'll probably find 10 to 20 who are going to do that. You know, so it's just, Techstars or whatever, you know, other organizations try to shortcut that with mentoring programs. But at Techstars, when you meet 100 mentors, people consistently walked away with 5 to 15 mentors, right? So that, that actually helped them. So I, I think that's it's a good idea to do that. Awesome. There's a very interesting question from Abdul, and I think this is going to be slightly uh, a curved ball, if I may say. So what are the questions you hate the most during an investment pitch? Investment discussion, I would imagine. The questions that I get from founders? Is that the, yeah, the questions which you hate the most from founders. I don't know. Um, they can ask anything. There's, there's none that I hate. I don't know. I don't really hate any of those questions. Yeah, that's, that's our job to answer those questions, right? <laughs> that's right. No, I, look, I, in my, when I talk to founders, there is always 10, 15 minutes at the end or maybe even more where the founders can ask me anything I, I, they like to ask me. I just find it curious how there's, there's sometimes there are founders who don't want to ask me anything. And I sit there and think, okay, so you've got 15 or 20 minutes of my time. So ask me, how can I help you? You know, what, what, what are the things, where, if you want to make use of me in coaching later on, start now. Like, like what are the kind of questions where you think I could be helpful? And that, that then results in interesting discussions. Right? Yeah, so, but I, I, founders can ask me anything. Sure. There's a question from Maxim, and he's, he's asking that, is there a possibility that investor can be interested in investing purely in an idea no MVP, but with a clear schedule of development uh, plans. Yes. Great. It's going to be hard, but hard sell though. <laughs> unless you are, let's just say, investors need conviction that this plan is going to come true. So there are two ways in which you can develop conviction. Either the founder has done it before, and That's you know it. that they can do it because you know them and you know their execution capability. Right. And or the plan that they present is just so incredibly well thought through that, you know, you're just blown away. I made an investment like that um, earlier this year where both were true, the, both the, the previous experience of that team and the precision and the depth with which they had thought through what they were about to do was just, it was incredible. So I, in that call, I, I, I didn't even have to think about the investment. I, I, I said yes immediately. I think the next day it was no, I didn't have to consider it at all. It was a super easy decision. But that's, that's because of the level of intimacy you had with the... Uh, with I didn't know that team and it was even a cold oh, inbound. Okay. Uh, one of my friends had invested in them or, or, or committed, I can't remember, to invest or he mentioned them to me, uh, me to them. 
So they reached out and and um, I know I knew of the company that had started before, and I didn't know them at all. I I just knew that. But when they then presented what they were about to do, it was the quality of that plan and the work that they had put into it was amazing. So and I just thought, wow, okay, that's a great team. This is a really interesting space they're in. The level of work they have put in to really figure out how to do this. And the things they've already figured out along the way, it's just, that's that's really quite impressive. So I thought, okay, I really would like to work with that with that team. Yeah. Perfect. This is amazing uh, in, insight. There's a follow-on question to this one, uh, probably from some other gentleman. He says, any specific tips to the people who present you with just an idea, uh, pretty much a presentation file? Same answer. It's, it's uh, so. Let's just go back to what I said earlier. Um, if you have a strong team, yeah, and what like who are the people on on this team? What have they done before? Why do they? How do they know each other? Why are they? Is this a great team to work on this problem? What have you figured out about the customers? Yeah, not the problem, but the customers. Who exactly is the customer for this thing? Be precise, right? It is this kind of individual in that company, right? And they have got a very specific problem. And the value proposition, and then the job to be done is this. And therefore, our value proposition is this. And there are 17 companies that have tried to solve this, and they've all gone wrong because they all did this wrong. And we figured out this is the wrong way because the right way has to be different. It has to be like this. And we tested it in interviews and everybody told us that's it. And that's what we're building now. Do you want to give us money? You know, if every pitch was like that, I would probably fund every pitch. No, but they aren't like that because the founders haven't put the work in to actually really crystallize this out. Yeah, And you don't need to have, obviously, it's better if the product proves that all of that is true, but it's not strictly speaking necessary if the depth of the investigation that you've done is deep enough so that you can really describe things in such a way that the investors know, okay, you've really figured this out. And I believe on the basis of the team that you can deliver the solution, which is similar to the, to the case that I described earlier, right? Great team, really figured something out. I believe they can do this and, and they have not done it. That's actually, you know, um, uh, it allows me to toot my own horn for a very short moment. And that is that is one of the premise of Dudash, uh, the, the investor relations platform that we are constantly calibrating companies on the five dimensions, which are team, timing, traction, technology, and TAM. And of course, there's an expansion of that also expanding time, but that's usually applicable for late stage. And the beauty is when you are you are putting in the information, or when you are you are playing with the system, it the it, the needle moves north or south. And on top of it, we've kind of added another layer of it, which is we we call it as startup investability quotient. It's like you know a morning star rating for for startups. That I, I think uh, it would be very interesting for audience to check out. <clears throat> so uh, uh, then there is very interesting uh, question. Uh, is there, can you give some tips for AI solutions providing startup in terms of growth and stability as it is a little confusing for an end user to understand the difference between AI product and AI solutions provided for the product. I mean, that's very esoteric for me, but I don't know how you feel about it. You know, it depends on who your customer is, right? But um, I, th I think maybe the question asks whether, look, there's there's a difference whether you're a technology provider or, or whether you're a solution provider. Right. Correct. Right. I think that's what he's trying to ask. So if you're selling, let's just say you're a, um, selling an AI solution to developers, which is those would be the consumers of the technology, effectively. Yeah, then your the way in which your technology works and how the developers who are using it then use that as a product matters a great deal. 
if, if you're a solution provider to end customers, the end customer wants the product to work. It wants, it wants it to deliver not technology, but the benefits, the end benefits of technology. And there, they don't really mind what's, what's under the hood so much. They just want it to work. Um, and and that, I, I guess that's sort of the, the key difference because whether it says AI on top or not, I mean, who cares, you know? <laughs> it's it's just a self-driving car just needs to self-drive. Nobody really yeah. minds what it's doing it, you know? <laughs> And not get killed, not get us killed. That's right. That's that's the core metric. But but how the software internally does it, or, or the sensors, or the chips, or the you know whatever. It, it's just nobody will know how that. I mean, how do you know how your car even works these days? It's complicated as they have become, right? So I, I have no clue. I don't. I just want them to drive. You know, I, I want them to work or whatever. So I, I don't really. I don't know how it how it actually works in detail, and I don't really mind either. There is one very interesting question there, Jens, and I think I would love to pick this up. There, there are a lot of uh, startups who raise capital through crowdfunding, and they have more than three, 400 investors on their cap table. Yeah. How do you perceive this as, as, as an initial investor, as well as, you know, probably how do you see it playing out in the next higher up rounds? Um, I think most of these crowdfunding platforms bundle this up. So these investors actually have no voting rights. Um, there's typically, depending on the country, this is handled differently, right? But they either are bundled in an SPV or they are um, basically, they're managed, it's held in trust or, or it's basically power of attorney and things like that. So, um, and I, there are even some funds that are structured like that. So where the fund invests, but then the, the final beneficiaries immediately appear on the cap table. Um, I think it's more, if it's if it's pooled like that, I think that this is not a problem for a investors problem, yeah. because there is just one person who is responsible. Um, if you have that many investors and there is no pool, you're probably in, depending on your jurisdiction, you might be in real trouble because if you need all of these people to sign a piece of paper so you can do something, this is going to be incredibly difficult. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why you not very many investors invest too far away from their jurisdictions. There's, also tax, there's tax reasons for that, or tax, tax uh, like in UK investors will only invest in the UK for, because they get tax benefits, yeah, for example. But isn't it true only for the early stage investors, not the late stage? Right, so venture, it's, it's typically the tax breaks are for um, individuals in their own. So if it, when a German person invests in a German startup, they they have tax benefits, but that sure. obviously only works when you get taxed in Germany, which means it's German residents, you know, who have the tax benefit. And the same is true in the UK. Um, and then for, but everybody who has a structured fund, um, they're typically not eligible for those kind of tax breaks. So there they are um, more constrained by who their investors are. Meaning, let's just say if I'm a UK fund and I raise money from the UK government, the UK government will tell me, oh, okay, you can only invest in the UK. Uh, or or the when I take money from the European Investment Fund, they will say, oh, you can only invest in the EU or a percentage of the money can only be invested in the EU. And there's all sorts of restrictions around that. And that's sort of, those are the kind of things that constrain investors. The, the other reason is just practicality. German investors understand German companies. And then you say, oh, why don't you invest in a French company? All the contracts are in French. <laughs> you know, it's sort of exclusion by by language to start with. You know, so that's sort of yeah, 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 yeah. That's sort of how some of those those things work. Yes, I think I uh, this very uh, this is one question you probably have heard a million times, and I'm just repeating it for the sake of brevity here. Should I sign the NDA before I tell the idea to investor? My answer is hell. No investor is even going to look at you. But what's your take on this? Um. I've never signed an NDA in my life. Hey, you got the answer. <laughs> um, one uh, very interesting question, and before before we kind of you know try to uh, wrap this up, do you invest in a team where everyone is not fully dedicated to the to uh, the startup? Uh, not unless. So, so if this team doesn't become full-time with the investment, absolutely not. Yeah, so basically that is the contingency or, or a, a contingent that 
raising capital would mean that they're going to full time invest, uh, full time work for the startup. That's the uh, that's no, something I mean, we look for. So we need to be careful with generalization. But my my rule of thumb is part time doesn't cut it. Yeah, obviously, sometimes you have configurations where you have a team and maybe you have something like a chairman and the chairman is or chairwoman is part time, say, or something like that. That's not a problem. Right. But the, the, the core team that's actually doing the work, they need to be full time on the company, fully dedicated, because otherwise, I mean, you're pitching to me, hey, Jens, we're going to build you a billion to a 10 billion dollar like outcome startup, but I'm going to do it part time while I'm doing my day job. Sorry, that's not going to work. You know, that's it's actually fine to start a startup like that, but then you shouldn't ask people for me for money. I think that's the distinction. You know, I I just I I, the companies that I'm looking to invest into, I want them to be very high growth companies, and unless the team is fully dedicated towards making this happen, it's not going to happen, and therefore I wouldn't be I wouldn't be interested. And there is one last question which I have, which is around valuation. So how do you value a pre-revenue company? Uh, how venture capital or seed investor? Uh, I don't know. The, the next part of the question is not very clear, but yeah, how do you value a pre-revenue company? Um, you don't really. You basically, the, the way, the best, way in which it's, 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 it's more of a function of how much capital you raise and, um, and then where that money gets you and then what amount of money you would then be able to raise at what higher valuation. Um, and it's effectively, you try to figure out as an investor, if they give them this much money, will they be able to raise significantly more money, say 12, six to 12 months later? Um, and will, is that money enough to get them there? So for example, okay. I've, I've recently turned away an, an, an investment where I said to them, how much did he try to raise? Oh no, it's not true, I didn't turn it away. I just said to him, you, you will need at least to make this happen probably $2 million or 2 million euros, something like that. So unless the round is of that size, I don't see any point in it. So I, I don't mind your valuation, but unless we can, you know, get this amount of money together, there's no point in pursuing this because you won't be able to put the team together that will get you to MVP. And he completely agreed, right? So I, I, so, and, and so it's more of a function, is this money enough to get the company to the next point? And then it's like, sometimes I just talked to a company today who said the minimum that they need is 6 million euros, you know, seed capital. So what valuation is that? You know, I don't know. It would be high, you know, but it's really the amount of money that they need. Yeah. So probably starting at sixty million. <laughs> right. No. So well, I didn't. I don't know. Maybe you started whatever. You know, whatever it is. Maybe you started at a twelve million pre or whatever. Right. But it's so that would be higher than the norm. But it's you know. But if they can get to the next inflection point, maybe the company is is then worth a hundred million. Right. Fine. So it's suddenly you think, okay, maybe that's a good investment, right? I might get a, if I invest on the 20 million post money and the next round is 100 million pre-money, I may, might, might make on paper five times my money within a year. So maybe that's a good investment, right? Particularly because the potential of this company could be as a $10 billion outcome, right? So both in the short term and the long term, the return profile actually looks relatively compelling. I'm just not the person to write a 6 million euro check into this company, but you know, if that happened and there were good investors there, then maybe I participate in that. So it's a bit crazy, but it's it's quite it's quite an aggressive thing. So who knows? Huh? Maybe you can help people get there right through your network, and that's what is. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, so I need to sleep over whether I commit and help them raise the capital or or whether I say no, this company is not for me. I don't think you have an intrinsic responsibility to help somebody, but your network itself, the network effects that we talk about, yeah, yeah. they themselves kind of, you know. That's and awesome. usually I think uh, investors, especially the higher uh, round investors, prefer a warm intro to a cold uh, outreach. It's it's a signal can help, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Unless it is supported with data and history. <laughs> data is oh, good data is always better than no data. Uh, I'm gonna pedal you dash, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. 
<laughs> all right. Uh, that's all we have time for. We've gone over by four and we really value your time. Thank you so much uh, for making time for us uh, and for our audience. I'm sure uh, people loved it. Uh, I don't know how many people are watching on live stream, but this has been an amazing session. Very, very insightful. Thank you so much, Jens, and wish you a great evening ahead. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. See bye you. Bye-bye. Fundraising is an event, but what happens before and after that? Qualitative investor relations are the basis for future success. Visit udash.com to learn more. And for more episodes, subscribe to our channel.